AFS Viewfinders podcast is designed to deepen and broaden appreciation of film. Brought to you by the Austin Film Society and hosted by our programmers and friends. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the AFS Viewfinders podcast. My name is Lars Nilsson. I program for Austin Film Society and the AFS Cinema. And I'm here today with Noah Eisenberg, um, who, among other things, is the author of Edgar G. Ulmer, A Filmmaker at the Margins. And he's the programmer of the uh, AFS Essential Cinema series, Edgar G. Omer, Prince of Poverty Row. I named that one, and you didn't give that that name, so I hope it works for you, uh, which is screening this October at AFS. And we're going to talk a little bit about a filmmaker whom you may be aware of named Edgar G. Omer, and you may not be aware of, but at any rate, he is a filmmaker with a really interesting story, a story that uh, Noah here has chronicled, and we will discuss it. How are you doing, Noah? I'm doing just great. Thank you, Lars. And I do like the title, so thank you for that. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear it, because if you hated the title, no, no, it was I already like it. in print. No, no. It, it, uh, it wears well, so we'll, we'll wear it. All right. Good. We'll, we'll, we'll wear it all through October. Uh, and during October, so we're going to show some titles uh, that a lot of people have probably never seen. I would hazard a guess that if you've seen one Edgar G. Ulmer film, it's probably Detour. That's right. And, Especially with the, the, the 4K restoration and the release by Janice in the Criterion Collection this past year, for sure. That's the one. And we at AFS, um, the reason it's not part of the series is we at AFS two years ago or about a year and a half ago played a raggy 35-millimeter print of it a few times. And then once the restoration came out, we played that four or five times. So it seemed like we'd kind of covered Detour recently. So um, I would encourage everybody who, who um, is interested in Ulmer definitely to watch the films, not only in the series, but also to watch Detour. But the films that we're showing in the series, and I'll just kind of go through them a, a bit, is a, another film noir, a different kind of film noir called Ruthless, uh, starring, um, among other people, Austin's own Zachary Scott. The Man from Planet X, a $40,000 um, really cheap sci-fi movie that's a bit of a ripoff of The Day the Earth Stood Still. Um, the Naked Dawn, a, a Western, which represented uh, in some ways kind of a return of uh, Ulmer to the studio system, I believe, unless I'm oversimplifying it. It's an independent, the, 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 the key feature, and I think that, mm -hmm. that uh, The Naked Dawn is a beautiful film. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm almost as enamored of it as was Francois Truffaut, who called it a, a, small, a small gift from Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also in lurid Technicolor, yeah, which was right. a, a big, 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 big deal for Omer at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, not quite back in the studio, still, still, still independent, but uh, it's a bigger budget than a lot of the stuff, including, of course, uh, Daughter of, of Dr. Jekyll. Daughter of Dr. Jekyll, which uh, Andrew Sears said one of the most confounding lines that I've ever heard about that film, which we'll get to later. Yes. Uh, and then The Black Cat, uh, which is we're showing out of sequence, but it's Halloween. What are you going to do? It's the perfect Halloween movie. You got to show it. It really is, and it's a it's a horror movie unlike any horror movie that I've ever seen before. I've just never seen a horror movie like The Black Cat. It's so weird. It is very weird, and that is very much the uh, the reason for his his highly highly abbreviated life at Universal Studios. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's a, there, there's there's a long story to that one, but yes, yeah, so it is extremely weird. It is part of the Universal horror horror cycle, and yet it it. Uh, it's a standout. Yeah. Um, you have Bela Lugosi, you have Boris Karloff, both of them, you know, fresh off the 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 set of of Dracula and Frankenstein, respectively. And it, it's got more music than any other horror film of the period. And and you know, Uncle Carl Limley was definitely not happy about that. It was, this classical score, he didn't know what to make of that. Mm -hmm. Was worried that that was going to be box office poison. Um, and yet, it did extraordinarily well. In fact. There are a number of, of scholars who've, who've who've suggested it was, if not the very very top grosser of the year, it was it was way up there, and so it 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 did exceedingly well, better than than most of Ulmer's films did at the box office. So, uh, and yet his life as a you know contract director at Universal was 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 limited to that single film. I want to be sure that we get we get into that in our sort of chronology here, but. Um, in your book, you you quote uh, someone, and I didn't write down who it was, who said that Ulmer was sort of an Odysseus of of film because of his sort of travels. He had made all of these travels, gone through all these sort of travails, mm -hmm. eventually kind of made his way back home. But like Odysseus, he comes back home and his dog dies immediately, and there's all kinds of other problems. Um, but um, but we sort of look at that, and I I think you've sort of structured this all together as best you could. You've interviewed a lot of different or interviewed mm -hmm. people and mm -hmm. gone to the sources and. 
Um, Ulmer, of course, like all great directors, is a great liar, mm -hmm. uh, and so he's a great self. Oh, one of the best. Mythology, one of the yeah, best yeah, liars. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and so you have this sort of self-mythology, and you're kind of making the story out of that. Um, but take me through the beginning. So he's... Uh, he always said that he was from Vienna, but he, in fact, it went back a little bit farther than that, didn't it? Right. Yeah. He, so he was he was born in in uh, September of 1904 uh, in Olomutz, as it's called, called in German Olomutz. I think it is. I can't, I can't give the check, mm -hmm. but it is in Moravia. Mm -hmm. Moravia was also where, where where Freud was born, not mm -hmm. very far from there, in fact. Um, and his father, who was a traveling wine merchant, and his mother, uh, a, a dancer from Vienna professional uh, dancer, and, and uh, I think she sang as well, if I'm not mistaken, but Henrietta was her name. Um, she gave birth to Omer, the eldest of, of four children, um, at, the f at the family home in, 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 in Olmutz. That's where Siegfried, Omer's father, uh, was from. But as, as, as soon as they could, they made their way back to Vienna. And he always, like, like Billy Wilder, like Otto Preminger, um, like a number of directors who were actually born in the provinces, always declared mm -hmm. to themselves to be Viennese mm -hmm. because that's really where they came of age, and that was certainly true uh, uh, of Ulmer. So he went to, to gymnasium there. He made his way to the uh, art. And, and again, in terms of the lies that he told, it's very, very hard. So I spent a year in Vienna, or, or a, a semester rather, in Vienna, trying my best to, to verify all of these places that he claimed to have mm -hmm. been at different points in time mm -hmm. and getting school records and so forth. And I write about it in the book. Um, very, very difficult to corroborate his claims. And so he claimed to have studied architecture at the, at the Fine Arts Academy, but there's no record of an, an Edgar G. Ulmer, Edgar Georg Ulmer ever having attended. Mm -hmm. He claimed to have been at the Schotten Gymnasium, which is one of the great high schools in, 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 in Vienna. Also no record of an Ulmer ever. So, um, I, in writing this book, uh, so I began in Vienna, and I was working to a large extent at the very beginning with a uh, sort of a, a, a comrade of mine uh, who wrote the first German language uh, biography of Omer, a guy named Stefan Grissemann. And, 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 and Stefan, who is still a, a film critic at Profil, which is the weekly magazine in Austria, and, uh, was, a, was a daily uh, film critic for, for uh, Die Presse at the time. But anyway, he and I would compare notes, and it was always a, almost a game for us to find out where Omer claimed to have been, but never was. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. it was always he was. I, I say in the book, I mean, he's something of a of a zealot like mm -hmm, figure mm -hmm. too. Uh, mm -hmm. In 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 that, um, you know, he was everywhere and nowhere, and was this kind of almost apparition. I mean, if we go back to when this is now going to lead us back to, to the Black Cat, maybe at, at the, mm -hmm. um, which to a large extent is actually very very autobiographical. The Black Cat has a number of close close connections and hues to, toward the sort of the, the the outlines of his of his own life story. Um, when when Ulmer was was a mere uh, twelve years old, his father. Uh, died in Austrian uniform on the uh, Italian front, and Omer was sent to to, to uh, identify the body and bring the remains back to to uh, to Vienna, and was deeply deeply scarred by that. And so the story of the the Great War, which forms the backdrop of the Black Cat, is very much uh, a story of of Omer's own life mm -hmm. and 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 one of the kind of the, the, the principal traumas that trauma of the of that of the loss of his father. Um, and that war that really, really scarred uh, the world into which he was born, um, and so that was that was definitely a, a way for him to kind of draw on on his past and to do so uh, from across the pond, uh, and you know, we're looking back at, at at Europe and to do so in a way that he thought he could translate his own experiences to an American audience. And there are a number of of kind of emigre in-jokes and asides and, and different characters. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, if you think, for instance, for those who know the good, the good old days of silent cinema, I mean, the, the sort of the, the Yannings-like character who's driving, driving mm -hmm. right, the, right. The, the, the bus when they have the, the, the accident is just, and is describing the sort of, you know, the, 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 the war-torn region and the, the blood and all this. He's, uh, if, you, if you watch The Last Laugh, I mean, he, he is very much, uh, you know, with every, everything from his, from his mutton shops and, and just the way that he kind of comports himself. And even when they arrive in the rainstorm and he's holding up that umbrella, I mean, you go back to Murnau and, and Omar, you know, trained with, 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 with Murnau. He claimed to have, you know, apprenticed on a lot of other sets, but with Murnau, it's, that is in fact corroborated. Mm -hmm. And he began during uh, Murnau's, you know, Weimar uh, films and then is credited 
when he travels uh, to the United States. He left as early as April of 24 when he came to help stage Max Reinhardt's The, the Miracle uh, on New York's Upper West Side at the Century Theater. He very quickly made his way to Hollywood and did some work at Universal on some two real westerns. May, may I just yeah. sort of pause yeah. for a moment to sort of like, just so that people understand who Max Reinhardt was and what the name Max yeah. Reinhardt yeah. meant, both to these Viennese people, like um, both, to, both to Viennese and German people, yeah. truly. Uh, we're talking about Murnau and Wilder and Robert Sadmack and yeah. uh, uh, Zinnemann. Well, William Dieterle and Fred Zinnemann. Dieterle, Weiler, yeah. they all passed yeah. through, through, through right. Yeah, yeah. So all the, all the filmmakers did, and then the actors as well. They all had, uh, you know, everybody mm-hmm. wanted to make their way to the Max Reinhardt stage. Mm-hmm. He was the figure of the, of the period, and if you did not have that imprimatur on your resume, mm-hmm. you know, you, 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 you didn't have much. And mm-hmm. so everybody passed through Reinhardt. Um, is there he, anybody he, we could even ma- say is like a parallel to Max Reinhardt? Oh, I'm to, trying to come up with someone today. Like, thinking, who could it even be oh, today? No, but I would I would think of. Oh God, I mean, if you think of the, the different actors and 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 writer directors who were under the spell, say, of Stanislavski or mm-hmm. something, I'm sure, trying to think sure, of yeah. somebody like great, that great. who yeah, really yeah. made a, a, a notable impact and one that you know you can trace in terms of the style of method acting, for instance. A true sort of ideologue of yeah, yeah. his right. art. Yeah. Right, right, very much yeah. so. And, yeah. you know, a, a leader of a school. Yeah, sure. And that was the case of Max Reinhardt in Vienna and then also in Berlin where he he, he directed what was called the uh, Deutsche Theater, the German theater. Mm-hmm. And so, but in Vienna too, in the, in the, in the Josefstadt, in that district within in Vienna, he the the Theater in the Josefstadt, it's called. He he directed that, and that's where Ulmer uh, also spent some time. And and so many uh, Hedy Lamar, mm-hmm. who was a, who was a you know a friend and and and, and childhood friend even of, of of Ulmer's, and it would appear in in two memorably in two two films uh, of Ulmer's, uh, Strange Woman mm-hmm. in the nineteen forties, and then which is a the love weird of movie, very weird movie, <laughs> very weird movie, wonderful movie, very yeah, weird. Yeah. Uh, and then Love of Three Queens, and that's one of the very few pictures, very few sets that Omer actually stormed off. He just couldn't. He couldn't do it. Okay. He couldn't. She was impossible. And it's funny. I'm 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 working now on these these three Billy Wilder projects, and Wilder had a somewhat similar relationship to to Marilyn Monroe, mm-hmm. um, in that it would just drive him crazy in all sorts of ways, uh, professionally, um, erotically. One might su- suggest. Mm-hmm. And and Hedy Lamar as well. I mean, they, it was said that Omer and 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 Hedy Lamar on the set of of A Strange Woman also had this torrid affair. Mm-hmm. Um, whether nice, or not nice work true. if you can get it. Yeah, right, right. Whether or not it was entirely true is is is, yeah. is is not certain. But Omer did make his way to America in '24, made his way to Hollywood, worked on these two real westerns uh, with William Wyler, in fact, mm-hmm. at Universal. Um, Uncle Carl Lemley, as he was called, uh, uh, by 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 those who fell, you know, were brought in under his wing. Head of Universal, yeah, head of Universal, who who was especially fond of employing fellow sort of his landsmen, so to mm-hmm. speak, the people from from middle 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 Europe who were German speakers. Like William, William Wyler was actually from Alsace, but a Ger- from a German speaking family. Edgar Omer from Olmutz. They all sort of found a, a seat at the table, and Uncle Carl Lemley was famous for his Sunday lunches, lunch slash dinner. Um, where he would kind of hold hold court and would, would would tell these stories and would welcome these these youngsters to his table um, and treat as as uh, Ogden Nash Jr. I think once quipped uh, uh, Uncle Carl Lemle has a big family and so <laughs> they would gather there and have these sort of family dinners. That's where Omer met his then second second wife. This is uh, uh, Shirley. She was known at the time as Shirley Alexander, who was married to. Uncle Carl Lemley's beloved nephew Max Alexander, and it was during the production of *The Black Cat* that that's where Omer was uh, blackballed for love and not for politics, as it turns out. Um, but it was uh, before he made his way to 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 *The Black Cat*, he detoured, so to speak, and and worked as uh, in 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 the art department and set design at Fox and for, for Murnau's auspicious American debut, mm-hmm. Sunrise. Mm-hmm. And so, and Omer, it's in a credited capacity. There's a lot of work that Omer did where it's uncredited and you don't know whether to take him at his word, which is probably not the best idea. Right. Uh, in general. Right. Uh, though I think it's, it's uh, Bernard Tevanier who says that it's the most outlandish stories that Omer ever told. Those are the ones that prove to be true. Yeah, it's I those little it. white lies that he told <laughs> there that, that, you know. And so Murnau came, uh, obviously, to Hollywood and was... Um, 
sort of a, a celebrity as being this European art film maker who came to Hollywood, had a very short career in Hollywood, unfortunately, because he died in a car crash. Correct. Just Santa after, Barbara. Exactly. Just after Taboo. Yeah. Yeah. Which was his last film. Um, but, but there was a sort of prestige, there was a sort of highbrow prestige a- attached to Murnau in Hollywood, I believe. Yeah, and this was still, I mean, the, the, there's, uh, so you have uh, Klaus Kramer's book, it's called The Ufa Story, and there was mm-hmm. another book, I'm blanking on the title now, it doesn't really matter for, for our conversation here, but there, it was another, another kind of history of Hollywood and Ufa's competition. And so, Ufa was, being the uh, German Ufa, Ufa, the national Sorry, film thank company. You. Yes, yeah. thank you. Please, mm-hmm. please. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, it was the Universum Film Acting Gesellschaft. That doesn't tell you anything, but that's I think the, everyone that's knows that. Yeah, that yeah. Exactly. That's where you get the, <laughs> the acronym Ufa. And that was their leading studio. And so you'd had, uh, you know, Mornau was a trailblazer so, to a certain extent, but Lubitsch had already arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, there, the, 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 so the, 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 the example had already been set. The precedent was there to bring over these big name. You know, art, 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 you know, sort of uh, auteur type of directors like like. And in fact, von Sternberg, too, um, uh, came over and 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 was directing movies in 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 the, in the States and then went back to do, mm-hmm. to do, to yeah, do yeah. Blue yeah. Angel. You had, so you had this kind of exchange. And Joe Pasternak, who was uh, uh, Hungarian born, but was already at MGM, went and worked then for as I think if, I believe it actually was even universal, but went and worked in during the Weimar years there. So there was lots of exchange going on. Um, and it was a way to sort of class up your act. Yeah, exactly. You know. So these were these prestige yeah, pictures, yeah. Um, several of which were also shot multi-language, like the Blue Angel, mm-hmm, where you had mm-hmm. the, the yeah. English and German being shot simultaneously. Um, but during this age of the silence, too, it was a way for Hollywood to assert itself. So Fox could do this big prestige film, Sunrise, and make make a mark with with having a director like Murnau mm-hmm. at the helm. Mm-hmm. Um and for a young Edgar G. Omer, it was a chance to kind of cut his teeth on big, you know, big, big budget uh, Fox uh, production. Um, it was just two years later that he then would cross the Atlantic once more and uh, working together with Robert Siudmak as a co- getting, picking up the co-director credit on this. Um, his brother, Kurt Siudmak. Mm-hmm. Billy Wilder on script, which basically meant he dashed off a bunch of notes on napkins at the at the at the, <laughs> at the uh, cafe and the Kufers <laughs> and Dam, and and young young Fred Zinnemann, who basically held the reflector. Okay. <laughs> uh, and Eugen Schriften was the he was the old man on the set. He was in his thirties. The rest of them were all in their twenties. These young aspiring cineasts and, and and budding Hollywood transplants would make people on Sunday. Mention I'm Sontag in the summer of '29 in Berlin. So he went back. He he, he picked up a couple of other credits, but this is his you know his first directorial mm-hmm. credit uh, in in Europe. In the States, he'd done. Uh, I mentioned the two real uh, uh, westerns. He did a, a film called The Border Sheriff, which I think, if I'm not mistaken. Is right around sun. It's around 20, 20, 26, 27, maybe even before sunrise. Is it extant? Yes, and I've seen it. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've watched it with with Ariane, with mm-hmm. uh, with with Omer's daughter, mm-hmm. uh, in Sherman Oaks. We got it. Uh, Michael Pogorevsky, po- Pogo, as he goes by. I think I've got his last name correct, but he goes mm-hmm. by Pogo, who's mm-hmm. at the UC, at UCLA. He came over one night. We were able to screen this on Ariane's wall. Um, what we have of it is is it was a, a sixteen millimeter. Uh, film and I don't know whether we have the, the film in its entirety. What we <laughs> saw was 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 uh, was memorable, um, but also uh, you know it's a, it was routine work. I mean, yeah, it was of course, pr- yeah, yeah. you know churning out product. Um, but anyway, so it's after People on Sunday that he returns to the states, and that's when he claims himself. And this is another one of the, the, the if you'll pardon the expression, trumped up claims uh, of Omer's that he's, re- he's and he takes out an ad. In, in in one of the Hollywood trades saying with with, with Ufa, the Ufa imprimatur, you know, you've got the Ufa mm-hmm. stamp yeah, yeah. there saying that mentioned Sontag, which was an independent production, it wasn't Ufa production. Mm-hmm. It premiered at the Ufa Palast Amtsu, which is one of the big picture palaces in Berlin, premiered in February of 30 there. And so he identified as an Ufa director and thought that this was going to be his calling card. Takes out an ad in the day in the, uh, the, the one of the trade uh, dailies there and and uh, ends up Finally, getting his chance as a as a you know at Universal, which uh, you know was not the premier studio in town. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was. It was not one of the majors. It was sort of a second tier. Yeah, studio. second tier. It, 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 yeah, it depends. Depends. Depends whom you're asking among mm-hmm. film historians. There are certain people I think who would group it together with the majors, but it's certain. You know, it's no MGM, no Paramount. Yeah. 
no RKO. I sure. mean, it's so so. Um, but this was a big chance for him, and he directs the Black Cat while Uncle Carl, as he was fondly referred to, is off in 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 uh, in Europe. He would make these trips to to uh, to the spa, and and also I think to pick up talent yeah. when he was there. Sure. He'd find find young 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 directors, and so it's Junior. Uh, uh, Junior Lemley, sort of the who, Prince Hal of the Universal <laughs> Clan, exactly. So he, yeah, yeah. he 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 allows Omer basically to do everything uh, that 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 he wishes, including filling out the sixty-seven minutes or so of the film. With uh, if you were to count, I think there's maybe forty-five seconds, maybe a minute and a half that doesn't doesn't have this classical orchestral yeah, yeah, score, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and also just bringing to it the kind of, of of European art cinema that we would identify from the the you know the period between the wars in Germany, and, and the the big reason why a Hollywood studio, particularly Universal, wouldn't want that is because they were always so keen to avoid alienating the middle of the country, exactly flyover country, and exactly. that was that was always a huge preoccupation with the studios and and with. Um, you know, these were almost all um, European Jewish immigrants. They right. were very, very eager to be sure that their films were playing to a middle America that Absolutely. they were that they'd only dimly sort of perceived, right. frankly. You know, right, right, right. No, no, uh, they had to be palatable to yeah. the masses, right. and and so any any sort of uh, highbrow references or overly, sure. you know, and the and the camera angles in this in this film mm -hmm. as well. Are 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 really there are a number of canted camera angles, the pl play of, of of shadow and light, you know, chiaroscuro lighting, all, all the kind of hallmarks mm -hmm. of what we commonly identify as you know German expressionist cinema. They're, they're all there in in the Black Cat, and that's really what kind of sets it apart from from the other entries to the to the kind of universal horror cycle. Mm -hmm. um, many of which are really really great as well. I don't want to privilege the mm -hmm. Black, but mm -hmm. the Black Cat is unique, I think, in that in in that regard. Um, so visually, as well as the the, the extraordinary uh, score, and and Omer was especially fond of using uh, Schubert's Unfinished Symphony in the, mm -hmm, in the way, mm -hmm. and I think it's in 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 the um, oh, this is uh, uh, Michel Palm, uh, an Austrian documentary filmmaker who did this this movie called Edgar G. Omer, The Man Off Screen. He interviews Roger Corman, and Roger Corman is, is, is speaks about this uh, in an on screen interview, saying how when the camera leads. Bela Lugosi uh, and Korloff into the the gun turrets and the and, and Schubert's unfinished symphony is playing. It it really almost makes the you know the hair on your back mm -hmm. kind of go. It's, yeah. it's, it, 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 and he remembers watching it when he, especially when he was a, a, a youngster and just how creepy it it, it was and it, and it works. I mean, I also think by the way the 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 the, the Bach toccata when when uh, it's actually Karloff. it's not it's it's not Karloff. It looks like it's Karloff. It, 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 it turns out. It's John Carradine who's seated at the right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's it's right. John Carradine, but, yeah, yeah. It, but it's from the back, and it, we think right. it's Karloff. But I think that was one of the first films in which they use the the the, the Bach fugue. Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly, exactly. Which then becomes almost a cliche. Yeah, yeah. That, um, the movie's almost like a quintessence of nightmarish Europeanness. Yeah. You know, like yes. between the wars. Um, it's it's there's something terrifyingly European about it. Yeah. It's like these savages killing themselves. Um, and and that that's what we have in the film. It's like this Art Deco house is built over a battleground, right. and it's almost like a nightmare of Europe in right. a weird kind of way, which is sort of broken up by this very sort of broad uh, Middle European comedy, and then also like David Manners yeah, being exactly. just a the total naive, the naive American. These are those stereotypical naive American unbelievably American couple. Naive. And, they're, and they're and they're there, which is perfect because for yeah. the audience, again, if you want to play well in Middle America. Yeah. You've got David Manners there, and he's going to like do the. He'll show us how we're to react and how we're to respond to all this. It's bizarre, just yeah. how how American and sort of um, square yes. and, and yeah. corn fed that he yeah. seems in the middle of all this. It, it it actually injects some humor into the film, which Absolutely. I imagine must be intentional. Uh, supernatural, perhaps. Baloney, perhaps not. That's so good. And directing uh, Lugosi was it was very hard because he has a tendency to overact. And and Omar remarks, I think in his interview with Peter Bogdanovich, how hard it was to kind of tamp that down. Yeah, sure. But there are a lot of the a lot of the the, the more memorable and kind of cornier lines come come from uh, 
Dr. Vitus Verdegast, which in German is so almost having a good time with this as well. Verdegast means to become guest. I will, I will, I will be, whether you want it or not, I'm going to become your guest. I so see. That's, his, that's his last name. And what does Hjalmar Polzig yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. Do we know? Uh, well, well, Polzig, so that, no, well, Polzig is a play on this, this uh, a very, that's very famous- That's the name of Karloff's character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, yes, exactly. That's Karloff's character, Hjalmar Polzig. And Polzig, is, that's a play on Hans Polzig, who was a very, very famous architect um, in turn of the century, Berlin, who uh, uh, built, among other things, the Schulze Schauspielhaus, which is one of the most glorious and grand theaters in Berlin. I see. He also, though, uh, did did sets, and he did sets for, among other films, uh, the, the 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 third Golem film from 1920, sure. directed by Paul Wegner. Uh, Paul Wegner, the Golem wie in der Welt kam, the Golem, how he came into the world okay. from 1920. Those are Pozzi sets. So to call him uh-huh. again in terms of sort of positioning yourself and, 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 and drawing these connections to that world, there are a number of ways in the in Sort of which, like when Joe Omer Dante uses hard director names in his yeah, films. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. so the in-jokes, but yeah. also I think it's a way for Omer to kind of prop up this film that mm-hmm. otherwise is just sort of American product yeah. and make it a little bit more, you know, give it, give it a little bit of, of, of that kind of European art, art cinema flair uh, as best as he could. So, and, a, and a tradition with which he firmly, firmly identified, even though in many instances, I mean, he claimed that he cut out silhouettes on the golem. He, mm-hmm. this, this, this was done, he would have been 16. <laughs> it yeah. can happen. Yeah, it can happen. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Print the legend. Yeah. But the, um, um, there's a tendency to sort of think, and probably Ulmer felt this himself, is that had he not hooked up with the woman he wasn't supposed to hook up with, he might have had a Hollywood career that was much more like Billy Wilder or Fred Zinnemann. Yeah, well, exactly. All these people that he started out with on, on People on Sunday. And he certainly believed that Yeah. and believed that he could rehabilitate his career. And in the f- famous letter from which I quote in, in the book at, at, at considerable length, he writes it uh, on, the, on the, the stationery of the Hollywood Plaza Hotel when he mm-hmm. flies out in the early 40s. It's 42, if I'm not mistaken. And he goes and visits Paramount. And he thinks that he's good as gold. He thinks that he's got a, a, a contract in hand. He writes back to, to, to Shirley in New York, who is still in New York, because he did a bunch of ethnic pictures. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see one of them. We're going to see American Matchmaker. That's one of four feature-length Yiddish pictures that he mm-hmm. directed in the 30s. Did two Ukrainian operettas during that time and the all-black moon over Harlem. So he's making these kind of these ethnic race films, as we sometimes uh, refer to yeah. them at the time. Um, but he writes back to Shirley in New York and says, uh, you know, I'm good as gold. I, I got a, a you know, multi-picture contract from, from, from Paramount. Uh, I'm going to do the Blue Angel, uh, remake of the Blue Angel starring Veronica Lake and uh, Beggar on Horseback. Uh, those are the two pictures that, 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 that he references, neither of which ends up being made. Mm-hmm. And so he never really gave up. He didn't give up then and he didn't give up in the 50s when he was going back to Europe and making these, these sort of oddball mm-hmm. films, all different genres. Um, many of them made on a shoestring budget, leading all the way up to The Cavern, which is his last last film, um, where he thought that just maybe, just maybe he'll, 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 uh, he'll finally be recognized. Even after The Cavern, in 1968, he did a, 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 revised his, uh, the, the Goldsmith script for Detour and, and set it out in the, this is sort of the summer of love out in San, Fr- in San Francisco and, wow. called, and called it The Loser. Um, it was the loner, and then he and then he penciled in on the on the script. He called it the loser, but it was registered as well. And he was hoping that you know some young filmmaker, and in fact the French, he was very very enamored of 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 of, of the French filmmakers Truffaut, Godard, uh, and I think it was Tavernier who said that, or maybe it was Truffaut. In fact, after Truffaut championed the Naked Dawn, which we'll speak about uh, in just a second, maybe, but um, but it was after that when he when when he came over to interview directors. And it was uh, he, he sees the Naked Dawn. He calls it this, this, you know, the le petit cadeau de Hollywood, the small gift from Hollywood. He then uh, it's Omer thinks that maybe he will he will do the remake of of uh, of Detour. Um, he also spoke, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was either with Truffaut or one of the others about about remake, re- remaking uh, People on Sunday as well, mm-hmm. doing a kind of mm-hmm. a, a different version of People People on Sunday. So he wanted to give himself another chance. He wanted to see whether he could finally. Uh, earn that, you know, that that recognition that really never came his way, mm-hmm. and that was very very difficult for him. And you can imagine over time, you know, bitterness set in, certain resentments. Um, Ariane tells the story how they had their home on on Kings Road, just uh, up above Sunset, and and she always called it uh, a Mortgage Hill because they were constantly mortgaging the house in order to pay for the next picture. Yeah. Uh, and it was that kind of desperation that I think was was really difficult, difficult for 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 Edgar, difficult for the family, difficult for Shirley and for 
for Ariane. So in terms of all these years in the wilderness, like, what is your opinion? Is, your, is it your opinion? Because I, I sort of have the opinion myself that even if he had not hooked up with Shirley, he probably wasn't due to have that kind of, you know, wide appreciation as a popular entertainer in film that Wilder and Zinnemann has. He's just a, he's just not. It's hard to it say. Didn't have a, it didn't have the common touch that it's, they had. It's hard to say. I mean, that 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 G dictum, you know, that art is born in in, in constraint, born of constraint, and dies in freedom. Omer was at his best when he was operating under the 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 sure. the, 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 the harshest constraints. Um, I think it's Vin Vendors who, in that same that documentary I mentioned, mm-hmm. Edgar Omer, uh, Man Off Screen, he 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 talks about how you know because people like to fantasize what would what would Omer do if he had his sort of a uh, an A-list cast and a, and, a, and, a, and a big studio budget. It's hard to say. I mean, he really was at his best when he had his back against the wall, and because it's just stripped when it's stripped yeah, down yeah. to nothing. Uh, well, that's I mean, that's the, that, that is yeah. the great conceit, the real. I mean, if we can call it brilliance, but uh, of detour is yeah. that it yeah. is a distillation to to and you know, Scorsese. Much of other people have commented on this. I mean, it is the essence of film noir. Yeah. Uh, on a on a budget of just over a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Uh, and without any real sets, and a, you know, a bunch of bunch of bunch of rear projection, and some smoke pots, no stars, and, and no stars. Yeah, um, and that's really said its best. So it's hard to, to, to answer your question. I'm settling me to hedge, but you know, this requires, of course, you know, real conjecture on our part. Of course, yeah. But but I I think that he was somebody who was destined for better or for worse to travel this Odyssean route that he did to yeah. be this kind of very restless, peripatetic. You know, filmmaker that he was, a kind of itinerant filmmaker, where he moved, and that's so in the in the 30s when 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 he needs to flee Hollywood, when he's you know as legend has it, Uncle Carl says you'll never work another day in this town, mm-hmm. uh, and does a, a quota quickie up in in Montreal called From Nine to Nine, comes to to New York and does all these ethnic films. I mean, those are I think really really good examples of the versatility of Ulmer. And the curse, it's Cirque, actually, who says that, 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 that uh, in, in, in that, you know, the, the interview, Cirque on Cirque, um, where, where he says that, 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 that once you become marked a B filmmaker, you, there's no turning back. Yeah. And he was very fearful of that himself, Cirque now, Douglas Cirque. Sure. Um, and they, they worked together. The, the first American film that Cirque directed was, uh, was uh, uh, Hitler's Madman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Ulmer was involved in that. And they were, they were, they were friends. And he, he, he comments specifically with reference to Omer that, you know, Omer, he, he, when, 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 when producers and studios recognize how much he can do with so little, of course they're not going to like, here, here's, here's a massive budget and here's mm-hmm. some A-list stars. Mm-hmm. Too. No, why would they when they can see that he, this is exactly the kind of person that they want to do these, do these cheapies, these quickies. And, right. and that's what he became famous for. Yeah, that's an asset. They can they can give big money to the people who don't know how to do it any better. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, it's interesting because you know today, uh, and here at, at UT in the Department of Radio, Television, Film, we have students who know nothing but 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 shooting on uh, digitally. Yeah. And 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 we have a class that Deb Lewis teaches in which they they they, they shoot sixteen, and they learn. Oh, we don't have an endless supply of film stock sure, here. Sure, sure. And I don't mean to, you know, cast aspersion that our students are outstanding. There's no question about it. But if you don't know the kind, so so when Omer and he claims that in terms of a number of these the, the pictures, including a couple that we're, we're mm-hmm. showing mm-hmm. Uh, here, the the shooting ratio was as small as two to one. Mm-hmm. He really didn't have a lot of film stock. You so know, there was no a, wiggle room for an hour and five minute film. He yeah, shot two hours and ten minutes. Correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And then and then with you know some smart editing. Uh, Managed to get it, you know, up on its feet and yeah. and and have it watchable. <laughs> sometimes in those cases, sometimes in those cases, possibly with actors who are not, you know, necessarily up to speed right, on a right. film set. So, Man from Planet X, for instance, I yeah. wonder. Mm-hmm. I don't know the exact shooting ratio. And again, this is in his three-part interview with Bogdanovich. And late in life, he'd already suffered from several strokes. Um, he said a lot of things that 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 that, that, that one cannot corroborate, yeah. and yeah, that yeah. were just simply lies, or at least. Uh, Embroidered tales is a nicer way of putting it. Sure, he's in great uh, company. Yes, exactly. Oh no, 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 completely. Um, but that's where he talks about the uh, on certain films as being as, as the, the shooting ratio being as small as two to one. In other instances, maybe you know five to one, six to one, but it's small. In any case, not a lot of lot of, not a lot of stock. And for students, film students today who were just shooting digitally, and whether they're shooting on the phone or shooting on you know the latest the latest uh, digital cameras, it's hard to know what that's like. 
because you have suddenly this, you know, this this sort of endless supply. You don't you don't even realize the kinds of constraints that 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 that, that filmmakers like Ulmer had to face. Um, and certainly he was he wasn't alone. I mean, it's he's an extreme case, but he wasn't alone. Um, there are a number of other, I think, uh, filmmakers who are often, in fact, one of the early studies. This is from seventy two. I think it is John Belton in the Film Professional series. It's Ulmer. Mm -hmm. Ulmer Fuller and Borzaghi are all grouped together. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that of the three, Ulmer's probably the most maudit, to use the French, you know, the most accursed of them. Mm -hmm. But they all had uh, kind of checkered careers at different points and, and you know, uh, trafficked in different genres and, with, you know, were, 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 were dealt different, different uh, paltry budgets and so forth. So yeah, Ulmer's unique in certain regards, but not, 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 not always one of a kind. It's... Um you you said that uh, films uh, filmmakers maudit meaning yeah. cursed. Now yeah. there's there's some nuance to that. The French call him a cursed filmmaker. Correct. I've always wondered what what exactly that means. It it feels right, but what does it mean? Well, so 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 what they were referring to um, when calling Omer maudit, I think, is a tradition. It's 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 a we we you know this this is probably not known to everyone. But when 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 Fritz Lang's M, which was an extraordinary film, mm -hmm. when it was released in France in France, it was called M le Maudit, the Cursed. Mm -hmm. And so it, it 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 is it is something that's both a term of praise and a term of opprobrium. I mean, when someone is cursed, obviously they're not able to to. Uh, to follow the straight and narrow, so to speak, and they're you know they're they're they're, they're doomed, and, and and his work is 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 in in certain instances doomed. But that's also especially for the cineasts around the cachet du cinema, uh, the critics as well as the you know budding filmmakers, and they all began as critics, or many of them at least during the French New Wave began as critics. What they when they said Modi was also kind of a a cool and renegade status, right? This is not Hollywood gloss. This is Modi. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that, that, that Omer was championed among them. Also, look, let me just uh, put it this way if I can. I don't think it's a, a stretch. A lot of these, these uh, and they were young male uh, filmmakers around Cachet, you know, around Bazin's Cachet du Cinema, mm -hmm. it was almost like they were trading baseball cards. And by the time in 68, when, when, when Saris publishes the, the American Cinema, it too is organized, and people used to carry around, you know, their 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 dog-eared American cinemas. Expressive and they, esoterica. Exactly. Well, yeah. he's in the expressive esoterica. But these were, you know, you were collecting your baseball cards, and yeah. and 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 so you had. So yes, expressive esoterica, which may as well be called Modi. Yeah. Right. Um, and and I can't remember all the others. Val Luton, I think, is in there as well. Turner is in there. Turner, yeah. Yeah, 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 right. Who had also, you know. Yeah, yeah. A, quite a career, but also you know he. he but Bettigers, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but the point is, is that I think that Omer for the French, uh, I'm struggling to make it, but I'm going to make it now. Is that Omer was a discovery? You know, he wasn't. You know, they felt like, oh, we found somebody. We found somebody that others aren't watching. You know what I mean? So it yeah, was yeah. A, it's like the specialness of having your. In, in in a small coterie of the insiders, having oh. having having your you know the, the the film that has a certain cachet because nobody has seen these films. This is a dynamic that persists even today when oh, we sure. have so much access, and you can see it on Letterboxd, you know, on the movie logging site. You see it all over the place as people sort of having their baseball cards. That's a great uh, symbol for, yeah. for all of this. I think so, and for programmers too, programmers, mm -hmm. preservationists. There's certain. I was just there's 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 a a, a musical from '33 that uh, Leonard Malton champions is one of the greatest, but it's impossible to see. Right. Yeah. Sure. And uh, and I think it's that, that that sort of that rare quality that Omer, you know, that's part of the 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 the, the mystique. Yeah. Of, yeah. Of, sure. Of sure. Absolutely. Like uh, the cavern, I've never, I've never been able to see. Oh, yeah, it's just, not easy yeah, to see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think there's an Academy print, if I'm not mistaken, but it's not easy to see. Um, but if I were able to see it, I would post about it on yeah, the course, internet. Of course, of course. And I'd say, yeah, I just saw a 35 print yeah. of the cavern, you know. Just, John Sack, just yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but John, so, John Ahern, who so, else? Are, yeah. So, I, I, uh, Brian, is it Brian Ahern? Or, or Brian Ahern or, and John Saxon. John Saxon, there you go. So, I... I hate to use a term as prosaic as career path to talk yeah. about um, yeah. Ulmer, yeah. but it really was so precipitous his fall after the Black Cat, correct, uh, leaving Universal. That the next movie he made was a real low budget odor with like yes. Big Boy Williams, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did uh, uh, Thunder Over Texas. Thunder Over Texas, sure. Yeah, sure. yeah. 
and, and these exactly. are these are program pictures. Like Thunder Over Texas was probably like a three or four day movie. I'm guessing, if that, yeah, if yeah, that, yeah, and yeah. a budget of probably twenty thousand sure, dollars. Sure, no, certainly no more than forty, but I'm guessing closer to twenty. Sure. Um, and they would do it, you know, uh, on the on the back lot at one of the studios where they're able to cordon off a certain amount of space and. It's got some funny moments in it, though, that film. There's a great, there's a, there's a, uh, a, a young girl who plays in it who's a bit, a bit of a, you know, a poor man's, uh, uh, oh, dimples, damn it, I admit that, but poor man's Shirley Temple, there we go. Mm-hmm. And she has this line where, where uh, there's an exchange and, and, and she's being a bit moody and she says, I want to be alone, and does the, <laughs> does the Garbo from, from Grand Hotel. Sure, sure. Uh, and there's some funny, so there's, a, there's a kind of little bit of Borscht Belt shtick that's thrown in there too, and Big Boy Williams is acting as kind of wooden, and you know, mm-hmm. he's, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he also was one of the, did a bunch of those singing cowboy movies too, these B, that the B units mm-hmm. at, different, at different studios would do uh, with people like uh, Big Boy Williams, and, and, and there, I'm blanking on a couple of other, other others who were, who were in that category as well. Um, anyway, he did that. Then he did this um, Dam- Damaged Lives as well. Mm-hmm. It was a VD uh, movie, yeah, right? V- exactly. It's uh, the, the threat of venereal disease, the threat of, the threat of, uh, of uh, syphilis. Those were called hygiene movies. Hi- they were, in fact, called hygiene movies, instructional films. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and when they would show those, sometimes I think they would sell like medical pamphlets. Yes, exactly. In the theater, and those would, those would be and, profusely illustrated. And they, and they were held up in a number of states. The censors wouldn't allow mm-hmm. them to be shown. Like, I wish I could trace for you exactly which which states it was the state board censors censor boards said no but there were a number of states that weren't willing to to show it and if i'm not mistaken uh damaged lives also it was able because of the the, i think the censorship had its premiere in canada before and it was a it was a canadian american Mm -hmm. production um i mentioned already the quota quickie you know to fill up the quota Mm -hmm. of, of of films that needed to be shot in a given year this is uh from nine to nine which is a uh uh, a little, a little whodunit. Mm-hmm. Um, also done on a shoestring and done very, very quickly. Um, and then, yeah, you talk about this, this precipitous decline. Then he does these ethnic films, and some of them are really remarkable. And in fact, what we're going to see, the American Matchmaker with Leo Fuchs, who was sort of the Yiddish Fred Astaire, mm-hmm. uh, very, very witty. It's got a lot of play on sexual, sexual innuendo and and sort of sexual mores of the time, which was pretty, pretty racy for for a film mm-hmm. from 1940. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's the fourth of the four Yiddish pictures, the four Yiddish features that he made. And to a certain extent, I think it may even be, I can mean, I, I, it's a comedy, so it, it, it stands out. Visually, The Light Ahead, which is uh, uh, the, the first one, which is an adaptation from a, a famous uh, Yiddish novel called the Fishke the Krumer, Fishke the Lame, but they called it The Light Ahead mm-hmm. instead. I think it's got a better better ring to it than yeah, it the does. Fishke Definitely. the Lame. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think Fishke the Lame would have played so well. Um, that is visually much. In fact, that's. Uh, I think it was Jim Hoberman who said that it's it's from Caligari to Hitler in one lurid package. Is mm-hmm. uh, uh, is, is the light ahead? Um, it's got also uh, it visually the sort of the holdovers of, of German expressionist lighting and camera angles and and so forth. Um, and those, but, but, those but American Matchmakers have... is really is really fun. And now, I those it, must have been really cheap. Those are very very yeah, cheap. Yeah. Incredibly cheap. Uh, in some cases, even under twenty thousand yeah, dollars. Yeah. Um, and they would use, so they filmed, uh, uh, two of them were filmed on location in Flemington, New Jersey. And, and in one instance, I think this is the singing blacksmith and then Natalka Paltavka, which is one of the two Ukrainian operettas. They filmed them back to back, use this, and you can see some of the extras in both of the films. Sure. So if you look very closely, you'll see these the, the people they're using as extras in the Ukrainian suddenly are donning, you know, side locks and, and they had the beard. So that worked well. Uh, and are in the and in the Yiddish picture, um, and and uh, Moon over Harlem, which is a is a is a kind of little gem, I think. It's done for that. That I think was even cheaper than than some of the the, mm-hmm. the, the Yiddish films. Um, Sidney Bechet is uh, mm-hmm. has has a little the cameo. Great yeah, yeah, exactly. Has a has a has a great cameo in it, and it's kind of a beautiful commentary on life in Harlem at that time. And this is one of several instances in which you have refugee directors, emigre directors in the case of Omer, uh, refugee directors in, in the case of others who, who were able to flee uh, Nazi Germany and get to America, doing, doing all, all black, you know, films with all black casts. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and kind of recognizing, I think, a certain solidarity or kinship um, in terms of their 
perceived otherness and out, outsider status and, and, you know, being on the margins of, 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 of the dominant culture of America. I think a lot of people know about the all-black cast films um, because there have been retrospectives about those. For sure. and those have gone around. And there's and Donald Bogle did a really good book on, 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 on the period, uh, black film of that period. And even some restorations. But I think one of the... I think it's people are pretty unfamiliar with the fact that they're Ukrainian language right. films, and even like Yiddish films. It's like there's some of those that are still extant, and people know about those. Uh, but the Ukrainian language films, to me, were sort of the mind blower. That I had no idea, and they're very hard to get a hold of. Yeah, the the, the uh, four Yiddish features were restored and released on DVD, and you can. We're going to be showing a yeah. 35 millimeter print. Is that correct? No, it's a DCP. DCP. I wasn't sure. It's a restoration. Um, no judgment. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> no judgment. Um, but the um, Jewish uh, uh, film 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 center at, at Brandeis, mm-hmm. they they were able to raise money and to do this, as they've done with a lot of Yiddish films. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a woman there, Sharon Revo, and her daughter Lisa Revo. They were responsible for 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 doing this, and so they are available. Uh, by contrast, the the, the two Yiddish, uh, the two Ukrainian rather operettas are really really hard to to, to see. Now those would have played, those would have just played in Ukrainian communities in uh, yeah, America for sure. In, and in fact, those were those were Canadian. It was a Canadian, both of them Canadian Canadian uh, uh, productions made in the U.S. but then aimed at the Ukrainian diaspora, so to speak, the uh-huh. Ukrainian, you know... Where were uh, the centers of the Ukrainian diaspora? Well, you know? it, 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 a number of Ukrainians migrated to Canada, so there were a lot of, a lot of, uh, of, of uh, screenings up there. Okay. Up north of the border. Toronto, Montreal. And, uh, and elsewhere, and yeah, places yeah. in between. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and then in the urban centers, so Chicago, New York, sure. uh, okay. places where you had a that Ukrainian community, yeah. because these are Ukrainian language films. Yeah, sure. So uh, you had a potential audience pool, even for these films, yeah. of... 12,000 people or something. So that that really makes you think just how small a community you're making these films for and what the, even the potential audience and like what the budget must be and that you're making actually like an operetta, which of necessity involves like playback of music and a lot of dancers and singing and everything. That's... That's it's really like from another planet, right? And he didn't understand the language, and he claimed even with the Yiddish, even though he was a German speaker, that yep. that initially was 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 not was not mm-hmm. easy for him. With the case of you know Ukrainian, he he didn't understand. These were you know it's freelance work. I mean, he was just picking up what he could. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> you know it depended on in, in certain cases uh, some entrepreneurial producer got in touch with him and said, hey, uh, here here's the amount of money we've been able to raise. Can you do it? Can you do it on this? In terms of your career, you've fallen about as far as it's po- It's almost like an absurd level. Like you've no, fallen no, he, below he, he, the basement he, in terms he, of your he's, career. He's in the abyss at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's really shocking yeah. how yeah. far yeah. he's fallen from being hot shit in Hollywood for about one movie. Well, well uh, John Landis, again, I keep yeah. referencing mm-hmm. Michelle Palm's uh, documentary, but on camera in that one, and man, Edgar Gilmore, Man Off Screen. Which, incidentally, you can screen on the Criterion Channel. Okay, okay. You can watch the Criterion. Uh, Landis speaks of, of 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 what he calls uh, movie jail, Hollywood. Mm-hmm. You know, where yeah, you, yeah. you sort of sure, land sure. in jail. He knows and, all about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, right. And he and Omer landed, and he almost had a you know a life sentence there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where you just you know you can't get work. They don't return your calls. Uh, you're mocked. And this, incidentally, so when writing the book. Um, there's a little uh, something of a treasure trove of papers uh, in the Paul Paul Koner was his agent. Mm-hmm. Koner yeah, represented yeah. Sure, Wilder, sure. Sure, all sure. sorts of really really big name yeah. filmmakers, actors, mm-hmm. many of them from that same German speaking Middle Europe uh, that Omer came from. Um, those papers are kept at the at the Deutsche Kinematik, at the German Cinematheque in, in Berlin, and I managed to 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 go through all of those, of course, and to see. The notations that even Koner, you know, in terms of so Omar would be asking, you know, I really need a job. I really need there's something I, you know, what do you, what do you got or whatever. And and Koner would write in in pencil on it, you know, he's belly aching or don't, you know, here he goes again. The exaggeration. So even even they weren't taking in terms. I'm not just again riffing on sort of this notion of Hollywood jail. Mm-hmm. So when your own agent isn't really taking you, you yeah. terribly seriously, that's rough. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ilza Lan was the name of a woman who worked for Paul Koner, and she collaborated with Omar on a couple of things, and she seemed to be sympathetic to his pleas. But but Koner, there were definitely times when he clearly just sort of rebuffed rebuffed Omar. Was he a, was he interpersonally a, was Omar an yeah. interpersonally like a, a abrasive person? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> interpersonally challenged. He was known to have a temper. Um, he had, and this is what's 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 uh, I think important for us to think about. 
he had incredibly high standards. And so even for somebody who's working with these teeny tiny, you know, paltry, paltry budgets, he wanted to get the most out of them. And if he felt that, you know, actors didn't hit their mark or what, he was known to yell um, with, uh, we, we spoke of, of, of a, a, a strange woman with, mm-hmm. with Eddie Lamar. He would, would, would pinch her in her ankles, apparently, uh, uh, to, to get it, you know, kind of get a rise out of her and to get her to. And these were things, apparently, according to Ariane, at least, that, that, that I guess he'd learned. Mornow would do this with actors, apparently, uh, to get them to respond a certain way. And, and so he, there, there were definitely fights on set. Um, but there were also people that he worked with uh, over and over again and who were kind of part of his, his sort of his ensemble. Um, John Carradine, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, who's great performance in Bluebeard and oh, Bluebeard, so which good. was which was to be made for Universal. Yeah. So he ends up getting blackballed and, and sort of I like that movie a lot. Banished from Hollywood, and so he ends up making it for PRC a decade later, um, which is on the, the practically on the end of Poverty Row. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, producers yeah. releasing Corporation, same same studio, P- same no, if you no, call it a studio, known, as, known as PR, no, referred to by just by its block letters, which was their logo. These big kind of concrete block letters, PRC, but sometimes referred, they thought that people would say that the PRC stood for pretty rotten crap. Yeah, yeah. And so, totally. so uh, that's where, where Bluebird is made. And John Carradine, Carradine was a, a close, close family friend, Shakespeare trained actor. Omer had enormous respect for him. And that's, you know, he respected people who came from, you know, what we call today the old school. So classically trained he loved the people who also had the same sort of passion he had for music, which was his first passion before cinema. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, he also on set he had a he had a baton that he inherited that allegedly came from Franz Liszt. And so he would on set would 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 use the baton to to, to direct as well. And apparently he would also <laughs> whack people on there. So so, so yeah. we're, we're, when we're talking about this PRC period, this yeah. is sort of him. We would never say he climbed his. He climbed back into Hollywood all the way, but but this is him climbing back into, um, at, at least geographically into Hollywood. He's he's he, he's <laughs> he's living in Hollywood, yeah, yeah. but uh, with a small age, and 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 at PRC in four short years, he directs eleven feature films, mm-hmm. and produces others, and contributes to to scripts and so forth, and so. What's interesting is, in the, you know, there's the statement he calls himself the, the Capra of PRC. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's some truth to that in the sense that he really had creative control. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back to that sort of notion of art being born of, of constraint, the, the, the sort of the André Gide dictum, I, I think that Omer, there, there's truth to it and there's definitely truth to it at, at PRC. And look. There are some real duds that he that he that he makes there. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, Girls and Chains is not exactly an exceptional film. There's, uh, uh, oh man, what am I thinking of as well? The, Club the, of Anna. Yeah, Club of Anna, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which has potential, and again, yeah, it's yeah. got Tom Neal from from yeah, yeah. Uh, who, who would then make a Detour with 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 him. And Tom Neal, he's not a horrible actor. Mm-hmm. They're worse. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, Credible war, yeah. during the war leading yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, yes. I mean, he's exactly he's yeah. sort of a a, a, yeah, yeah. a poor a poor man's leading leading yeah, yeah. leading leading player leading yeah. man. Um, Credible 4F. Yes, yes. And so, but it's a great period in the sense that he's able to be sort of big man on the lot. Mm-hmm. And I think that he enjoyed that to a certain degree. Um, he ends up uh, locking horns with Leon Frumkis, who was the the head of the studio at, at PRC, uh, and ends up leaving. There was a bad share agreement that was that was made. It's when they when he when he made actually uh, uh, a strange woman with 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 mm-hmm, Eddie Lamar. Mm-hmm. There was a deal that was cut between Frumkes, Hunt Stromberg, and I'm blanking on the other producer, but it, it, it basically Omer was kind of left out of it. It was a lot of money that so 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 he was able to get Eddie Lamar on loan out from from MGM. And Which is a big get. It's a big get. For PRC. But it, the money went to Frumkis yeah, and not yeah, to sure, Omer. Sure, and, sure. and anyway, they had a falling out over 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 money. Uh, didn't get the money, didn't get the girl, to quote uh, Double Indemnity. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so he then went on to do a string of, of European independence uh, after that. This is McCarthy-era uh, uh, Hollywood, Red Scares in full effect. And the G-Men allegedly came to visit Shirley and Edgar Omer ah. and asked him to name names. Um, and he refused. And they crossed the Atlantic, as did a number, you know, think Jules Descent, think... Uh, this is after the Naked Dawn or before the Naked Joseph Dawn? Joseph Losey, think 
So this is before the Naked before Dawn. The naked he dawn. comes okay. back right. to make the Naked okay. Dawn. Gotcha. Um, and the 50s, he's really, you know, and I, I had the, the privilege of also, thanks to his daughter, Ariane, who heads up the Edgar G. Ulmer Preservation Corporation, a one-woman one show. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm still the treasurer. I hope I am. Anyway. Oh, good. <laughs> anyway. That's what all treasurers uh, say. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, which means that I, <laughs> I, I, I still get my salary of uh, zero dollars and zero cents. But uh, anyway, um, she had the passports from the period. And that those passports are littered with entry and exit stamps. Yeah. And visas... Uh, he makes you know films in Italy. So the Pirates of Capri makes films with uh, 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 Louis oh Hayward. Hayward. There you got it. Hayward. Louis, yeah, Louis, yeah. Who was another like Caradine was a you know kind of a part of the family and also part of his sort of his repertory of actors sure. he liked to work sure, with. Sure. Somebody he admired, respected, mm-hmm. and so forth. But he does Pirates of Capri with Louis, with Louis Hayward. Um, Shot in, in 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 Italy, and the stories from that. Oh my God, the trying and 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 just impossible circumstances under which Omer made movies, both on these shores and abroad. Uh, there there are some 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 wonderful anecdotes that I was lucky enough to include in the book about this. They they the the the, the Omer family. Uh, slept in a whorehouse in in, mm-hmm. in in Naples in order to shoot this film, and mm-hmm. and and the money during during the middle of the production suddenly there's no more money, and it, th- th- these sorts of situations uh, that he had to face. And again, we talked earlier about him sort of falling into the abyss. I mean, he's just sort of deeper and deeper, I think, in the abyss, even when he's making movies in 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 uh, in, uh, in Europe. It's notable that w- w- when you're able to go around and do this and make movies under all these different circumstances, your technical proficiency and your mastery must yeah. just be incredible to, well, to be able to know everything that you're doing and be able to probably have to cover for crew members that you happen to have that aren't up to snuff. And again, out of necessity, out of yeah. constraint, just the, the, yeah. the, the sheer necessity had to do it. Um, and so whether he was directing in Yugoslavia or in yeah. Italy or in, he was at Eichberg Film, which is in Munich for a while. Uh, and in fact, they're the ones who then did the, the, the final film, The Cavern. Eichberg was one of the, 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 the companies in, in, in Munich, and, and he was able somehow to convince them to get behind this. Um, and, uh, but but it, you, know, you, 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 you had no choice. You had to be resourceful, mm-hmm. and Ulmer was nothing if not resourceful. <laughs> so he, uh, he, he at some point makes his way back to, so he can get to the, uh, the Naked Dawn, which is one I know that you want to talk, talk about. Yeah. He makes it back to the States, and it's not a studio film, although it almost sort of does look like a, like a, like a Technicolor B. Yeah, absolutely. Bit, it's know. very much a Technicolor. I yeah, mean, yeah. I think that's a very fair way to, yeah, yeah. if you're going to need to categorize it, that's precisely what it is. It looks like one of the John Payne, like um, Rhonda Fleming yeah. Technicolor Bs from that period. It's it's in keeping with that, mm-hmm. and it's I mean there 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 are are are, are some 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 uh, lovely moments that 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 kind of crazed dance number mm-hmm. uh, that 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 uh, appears about mid midway into, into the into the picture. But the, it, it it's got it's got solid acting. It's a great it's a great story. Uh, you've got this love triangle. Um, you know Truffaut admired it, and before you know it, we've got Jules Jim and. Uh, and um, it, 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 it's got a certain lyricism to it. It Wait, has the garishness You're saying it's of, a direct step ladder to Jules and Jim? Well, I don't, I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't, that, I couldn't, I couldn't make that. that Hold that, the presses. That, that, no, no, I couldn't okay, make that, right. that, 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 that claim. But I think that Truffaut definitely was, yeah. was, was drawn not only to the kind of the, the, the sort of the poetic qualities of the lyricism of the film, but also mm-hmm. I think the story of this of this of this love triangle. Mm-hmm. Also, the I mean, this is again going trying to understand why these French critics and and young filmmakers, cineasts, were, were, were drawn to someone like Omer. Is there was something fresh about it? There was something that wasn't you know Hollywood product. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. So so it didn't it was it, it, it it's devoid of that of the of the gloss of the and also. Uh, at that point in time, even in the sort of the final, the, these are sort of the last gasps of the, of the of the studio era, it's still built around the same principle of, of sort of stars and 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 powerful producers, mm-hmm. and and you know and a, and a few talented directors as well thrown in. But that wasn't Ulmer's world, and I think that for these for for you know critics and filmmakers like Truffaut. Who found something special in Omer? It was precisely that they deviated from that norm. It was that they kind of 
followed their own path. The and personality, that, too. Like, yeah. I, I think that beyond this, just the sort of baseball card collecting yeah, aspect yeah. of this that you talk about, there's yeah. also the fact that if someone has a personality that's big enough to come yeah. through oh, yeah. all of this, then that's truly yeah. a big, great and, personality. And if you, listen, you can hear his voice by, you mm-hmm. know, in that, in that documentary that I keep referencing, but those are, the, those are the, 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 the tapes from the Bogdanovich interview. And it's a kind of a booming voice. Mm-hmm. And he had that booming voice and that presence, that personality. Um, you know, the other renegade directors that they're drawn to uh, in, in, in so many of the kind of the cachet interviews are all the guys in eye patches. Mm-hmm. So it's Nick Ray, <laughs> it's Fritz Lang, it's Raul Ra- Walsh. Right. Uh, the guys who, who rock the eye patch. If, you, if you've got enough swagger. And it's very kind of a, it's a boys club. And it's very much about the sort of the swagger and and this sort of the the kinnis mas macho mm-hmm. and Omer has some of that even though he doesn't have you know the same credits as these other yeah, guys and yeah. he doesn't wear the eye patch yeah yeah <laughs> it's the eye the eye patch boys it's mm-hmm. kind of funny but there really are a lot of them. Mm-hmm. oh yeah <laughs> including Absolutely. the the guy and who I don't made think the first 3D I mean, movie and I don't think it's you know mere mere uh, coincidence I, I think the people were drawn they thought you know that was you know if you've been, Spend that much time with your eye, uh, you know, looking through the viewfinder, and you need you then need to don that eye patch. Wow, you must have really, you've you you you've got street cred. You've you've you know. It became part of the sort of uniform, along with the riding crop and the jodpers. Yeah. Exactly, you know, exactly. It was, it was exactly. just like kind of the way that you you were a German and the German accent. Yeah, it's yeah funny. Exactly. That all kind of went into the when you looked at like a, if there was like a caricature of a. Um, Hollywood movie director on, let's say, the monkeys in the 60s. Mm-hmm. It looked exactly like that, which is kind of funny. So um, which of all the films that we're going to show, I'm just going to wrap up our discussion right okay. now. So um, the uh, of all the films that we're showing, which is the one that you're most looking forward to, to revisiting in this series? I think it's got to be The Naked Dawn, actually. Yeah. I, I mean, sense that, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I'm really. I've I've seen it uh, probably I don't know dozen or two dozen times. I'm eager to see it again. I uh, haven't seen it in a long time. Ruthless is 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 an amazing film, mm-hmm. and I, I'm so glad that you're showing it. And I think it's a it's in certain respects a better choice than than showing Detour, especially since Detour has been sure. shown a lot sure, recently. Sure, sure, it's a lesser known noir of his. It's a bigger budget noir. Mm-hmm. It's a, about triple or quadruple the budget, which doesn't say much. Yeah, when, yeah it's still pretty small. About a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it it it's got a wonderful cast, and it's 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 got some, some 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 for for Omar especially some amazing production values that are often you know not his it's not not what one normally thinks of when one thinks of a of, a, of an Omar film. Um, oh, it was the critic at the Chicago Tribune who calls it he calls it capitalism a love story. It's a very very mm-hmm. dark commentary mm-hmm. on on sort of well, runaway greed. In this country at that period in time, in the you know the second half of the forties, um, and Zachary Scott, Austin-born, our yeah, own, yeah. Uh, is phenomenal. He's great. I mean, I think his, his performance is every bit as good as there as as, as it is in Mildred Pierce. Um, so that one's definitely uh, a great one too. I'm enormously fond of of uh, American Matchmaker. It's a mm-hmm. lot of fun. Leo Fuchs, who plays, who's yeah, known as the Yiddish Fred Astaire, who sings and dances and is very very witty. Uh, that's that's a fun one, a fun one to see on a Sunday afternoon, which is when we'll be screening it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no better film for 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 as far as I'm concerned, uh, for my money, there's no better film on Halloween than The Black Cat. So, oh yeah, that's, absolutely, that's, that's that's very exciting. And the one we haven't mentioned is the one that it wasn't uh, necessarily our first to... choice because uh, Beyond the Time Barrier, which was right. filmed in Dallas, exactly at the Amazing State tr- Fair uh, exactly. exhibition, I believe, exactly. uh, was kind of our first choice. Um, both of those, both that movie and Man from Planet X are a little sort of slow and pokey. Yeah. But we do have, we do, we are able to see in that, like, what Ulmer can do in this sort of... Absolutely. There's no question. ...fantastic cinema, there, like, with zero, yeah. like, so little money. Yeah. I mean, Man from Planet X, that's one of those films where I say you, you, you almost need to be a diehard Ulmer, yeah. Ulmer yeah, fan yeah. to really, yeah, really yeah. love that movie. But but I, 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 I'm looking forward to seeing it again. I'll, I'll watch it again. Um it doesn't have the same sort of the broader appeal of some of you know so yeah, let's say sure, ruthless sure, ruthless sure. has or even the naked dawn i yeah. think it's a weird it's a weird movie it's a very cheap movie and uh, i'm looking forward to kind of seeing how that plays with the audience it very well may and i'm sorry to gabe who's who works in marketing here it very well may be terrible cuz i haven't seen it in a few years it may not work with the crowd but hopefully the crowd will bounce back after it and yeah, but snap it's, back into shape bad in the sense that 
you know, bad suddenly almost becomes good. So, mm-hmm. so it so, loops it, so yeah, it yeah, laps yeah. itself. Yeah, the um, yeah, not bad meaning bad, but bad meaning good. As Run DMC once uh, once said, mm, I people have to look that reference up. <laughs> yes, I think. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, First album. Um, just to kind of wrap it up, I yeah. wanted to ask you what this means because it's a it's a thing that I read in a book one time. I think I read it in William Everson's. Um, oh yeah, classics of the horror y- film. Y- yeah. Um, yeah, and he says that Andrew Saris had said. About the daughter from daughter Dr. of Doctor yeah, Jekyll. Yeah, yeah. He said, "If you love, if you if you say you love cinema, you must treasure daughter of Doctor yeah, Jekyll." So, something, so, like so, that. something like that. Yeah. And in what fact, what the hell does that even mean? I think I think it's in. If I'm not mistaken, it's in the entry in Expressive Esoteric. It is. It, it is. Yeah, it yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in American cinema, uh, you know. Should we ask yeah, Molly Haskell? Yeah, maybe when she's here. Yeah, yeah. You, I think it's just appreciation. It's funny. Molly and I did, when the book came out in 2014, we did a, an event together. And, and she's she has a soft spot for Omer as well. And I and I joked with her about, you know, that her uh, late husband had, had, had been a little bit dismissive yeah, of yeah. Omer. But he also, look, he, Andrew Sarris, one of our, you know, greatest critics of the, of the, of the, of the, of the among the greatest of the, of the 20th century, he also had certain blind spots in occasion and he would revise uh, those views. Pauline Kael didn't revise so much, but Andrew Sarah, so for instance, when he wrote on Wilder and, and wrote a somewhat damning, damning review, came back and, 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 and revised it. The way, or, or, or Kubrick's 2001, he finally goes, he says, you have to, you know, a bunch of his younger, younger uh, critics says, you really need to watch the film Stone. So then I think he smokes some mm-hmm. dope and watches 2001 and finally realizes, aha, <laughs> now, now, I, now I get it. Um, but, but, uh, he, you know, it's, 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 it's a balanced entry, but it's not the kind of praise that he heaps upon the grandmasters in the other, and I can't remember the names yeah, of all yeah, the other yeah. categories. Yeah. Expressive Esoterica now, of course, is the only one that I'm thinking yeah, of, yeah, but the yeah, pa- yeah. Pantheon directors and, uh, lightly likable. Yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah. <laughs> but it's obviously Omer is, and, and for good reason, Omer's not among the Pantheon directors. Mm-hmm. He's got his own section. <laughs> we've been we've been dropping references to Andrew Sarris's book, which is called uh, American. Amer- yeah, the American Cinema, American 1968. Cinema. Uh, uh, which, Directors and Directions is the subtitle. Which which is even though we're sort of making fun of some of the categories in a light way, it's it's a book that must be on your shelf if you care about movies. Absolutely, yeah. and it was the book that people carried around mm-hmm. with them to go and see repertory screens, so they then would mark. And yeah, I'm yeah. mentioning the sort of the dog-eared copies. Yeah, I think yeah. it's Dave Kerr talks about this. I mean, this is the at that period in time. I think that people consider it was you know it's the Bible. It was what is what you 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 did this in order to understand a a a career of any director, whether it was a you know a sort of subterraneous uh, figure like Omer, sure. or whether it was those who were operating in the Olympian Heights, you know, like Hitchcock. And it was both the checklist for the baseball card people of the time, mm-hmm. but it was so much more than that because it did really help to sort of create the critical yeah. canon of what the who right. the auteurs were, you know. Yeah. And at this point, it's all. We it's wired into us, but it's wired into us because Saris was for sure was on the spot, and it was definitely a boys' club. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. One has to add that I think today, especially and at the time, I don't know whether there's enough self awareness. Uh, Molly can talk about that yeah, too. Yeah, I hope she will. Uh-huh. Molly Haskell's going to be here in a couple. Well, I don't think we've announced that yet, but anybody who's listened this far in this podcast. Uh, is gonna really give a damn about that? Monday that the third of November, correct? Yes. Is that is it a fair to announce? Sounds, no? sounds right to me. Yes, that's that's yes, what yes. I've got. We're showing uh, his girl Friday with uh, Molly. Hansen. Oh, fantastic! And that's such a perfect film for her. She's done a conversation, I think, uh, uh-huh. on the film. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Oh, I so look forward to that. All right. Well, that's been announced at the end of this podcast for anybody who's who's gotten through this. So I, I hope many people get, get through this and are interested enough in this to come uh, see all these films, some of which Noah will be at, all of which I'll be at. Uh, and we'll have a chance to kind of uh, meet people and talk to people about it, and people have a chance to really learn a lot more about Ulmer. Noah, thank you so much for taking the time. You're a very busy man, and we appreciate you stopping thank by you the studio well. to talk to us today. Thank you, Lars. I appreciate it as well. It's been fun talking. All right. And uh, if people are interested in your book, we'll have some uh, copies of your book there at the cinema that they can I pick think up. we got a box of 20. Get them while they're hot. And All I think right. we've got them at a nice discounted price, just like an Ulmer picture. All right. Bargain basement prices. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. 